I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Foxhole, finding shelter in science, philosophy, and faith in the chaos of life. This week, new studies show that more people are living alone than ever before. And as the pandemic continues, the sense of isolation can be heavy. But author Pico Iyer says that it's only by being alone that we find out who we really are. Most of us, myself included, spend a lot of our time racing around to make a living. And we never have a chance to make a life. And I feel this moment is the time to make a life. And that is something that's deep and internal and hard to measure. And then, ideas for how to quiet our minds during these turbulent times. I think if people can realize that there's so many gifts when we're quiet, and just realize that this is the mind that I have, let me tend this garden. Turning isolation into useful contemplation. That's coming up on KCRW's Foxhole. Author Pico Iyer is obsessed with the big questions of life. He's written books about the Dalai Lama, about how to approach the end of life with grace, and most recently, about how to embrace silence and solitude. Solitude, of course, has become a new way of life. The pandemic is forcing us to stay in. It's uncomfortable and sometimes unnerving being alone or with only a few people for this amount of time. But according to Pico Iyer, it can also be a time of tremendous growth. Iyer spent his childhood between Santa Barbara, where his parents were professors at UCSB, and England, where he attended boarding school and then Oxford. He now spends most of his time in Kyoto, Japan. Well, Pico Iyer, thank you so much for joining us this week on The Foxhole. Of course, I'm really happy to talk to you again, Jonathan. Let's just start with with what's happening right now and what's on uh, so many of our minds, which is this this incredible pandemic um, across the world. And you're in Japan right now. We're lucky to connect with you there. And, um, you know, today we want to talk a bit about about silence, about isolation. But why don't we just start with kind of how you have been managing and what life is like where you are right now. Just just begin wherever you'd like. Well, I have a very guilty answer to that because uh, as a writer, I sort of practice social distancing for a living. My wife and I are in our tiny apartment, sort of in the middle of nowhere. Um, Our days at the best of times, are spent just, in my case, writing for five hours, taking walks around the neighborhood and reading on my terrace. Um, We don't have a car or a bicycle. We seldom leave the immediate vicinity. So really, uh, in that sense, we haven't been affected very much at all. Um, Just an absence of visitors, really. Um, I had 21 speaking engagements cancelled, and in a way, that's a blessing because it allows me to do what I love to do, which is sit at my desk and write instead of babbling. Um, And Japan as a whole, in the last few days, things have tightened up and people are apprehensive there may be further restrictions. But really, so far, since um, mid-February, if you were to walk around our neighborhood now, it looks exactly the way it looked last year or five years ago. Cherry blossoms everywhere, old folks taking themselves and their dogs for a walk, kids filling the park and picnicking. Um, really, we fortunately haven't been hit hard, even though we were among the first in the line of fire when the virus broke out in neighboring China. So um, I've been really thinking a lot about everyone across the world without a roof and without resources, without a job to go back to, and without health, because here in Japan, we've been in something of a bubble. Yeah, that, and, and I think it's, you're, you're one of the wonderfully unique people who would say that I, I'm lucky to have 21 speaking engagements canceled. I mean, it, what I hear is uh, you're a person who, who values this kind of quiet time. 
Well, exactly. I think a writer is a specialist in loneliness. That's what she does for a living, and that's what I do for a living. Um, uh, spending years on end, essentially alone at my desk, traveling into the dark to see what comes out um, to meet me. And of course, when I say uh, 21 public engagements cancel, that means most of my revenue is gone. I'm sure my savings are depleted. My mother, as you know, is 88 and was in Cottage Hospital a couple of weeks ago. So like everybody, I'm aware of the frailty of this moment. But I'm also aware of the possibility. And my sense is always that whenever something terrible has happened to me in my life, terrible seeming, a few years later, I've seen certain things I got from it that I never would have got otherwise. And I find the good things that happen in life are rarely as good as they seem, and the bad things rarely as terrible as they appear. I think, for example, of of uh, a tremendous fire that wiped out your family home, and you lost all of your of your writing. I mean, it, your your archive of personal writings was wiped out. It, was that one of the things that was passing through your head when you just said that? It was, Jonathan. You're telepathic. Exactly right. The painted cave fire. I lost, as you said, all my writings, but literally everything I and my parents um, owned in the world, every last object. I, I went to um, Vons uh, on Chapala Street at that time, uh, midnight that night, I bought a toothbrush. That was the only thing I had in the world. And yet, um, now when I look back on that, many years later, uh, I realize that it was that fire wiping out my home in Santa Barbara that maybe made it easier for me to spend more time in Japan. And when it came to replacing all the things I'd lost, I realized that I didn't need 90% of my books and my clothes and my furniture. It was just stuff I'd mindlessly accumulated. And although the insurance company would gladly have replenished everything I lost, uh, I didn't need nearly all of it. And also having lost all my notes, as you said, handwritten in those days, so no backup, um, I thought, well, now I have to try to be a novelist, which perhaps I'd have been too shy to be otherwise. Um, I still get traumatized every time I see that wall of flames rising above 154. And all of us in Santa Barbara know that's been happening more and more often. And I think that painted cave fire has left its scar in me. I, I'm not happy to see the skies turn black and the sun to turn into a pulsing orange ball. Nobody's happy to see that, but I, I think it brings back bad memories for me. But nonetheless, um, I wouldn't say that was uh, an unequivocally bad happening in my life. Yeah. Well, if we think about where we are now, I think for, for a lot of people, this might be one of their, their first major introductions to, to isolation, uh, to, to silence, albeit we, we have so much technology around us. Uh, when I say that, I mean, how do we begin to approach this? Because some may say this is, it, it, we don't want to be alone, isolation is bad, but, but I know from someone like yourself, you have been able to grow so much in your work through, through quiet. So I don't know, wh where does your mind go when we begin to think about these subjects? The first place it goes uh, is to the last maybe 10 years where almost every time I see a friend, um, she or he will say, I just don't have enough time. I, you know, I wish I could see my friends more. I wish I had more time for my family. I wish I had a chance to take a walk or to read or to listen to music. But the world is accelerating so much. I'm trying to keep up with this post-human speed and, and I'm becoming a post-human myself. I'm losing my humanity and I just wish I could take a break. And when I tell my friends, uh, I've never used 
used a cell phone. I'm currently you know, borrowing my wife's to talk to you. Um, right. They say, oh, God, I, w- I wish I were like that. You know, I'm, I'm envious. I, I want fewer distractions in my life. And so I feel that so many of the, of course, relatively privileged people I know uh, over the last few years have been crying out for just a break and a chance to reassess themselves, to remember what they care about, and um, to to spend time with things that really enrich us rather than things that just cut us up. I mean, I think of myself two months ago, I was probably talking to my friends about Meghan and Harry's departure to Canada, or is Brad Pitt going to be back with Jennifer Aniston, or who's going to win the Academy Awards, which is fine stuff to talk about. But it's not really, it's keeping us from the heart of life, and it's not what really sustains us and makes us happy. I think in my case, and this goes back really to your question, I've found that the more I'm absorbed in something, a conversation, a piece of writing, listening to music, the happier I am. And the more my day is cut up into little texts and sound bites and fragments, the more all over the place and rattled and, and unsettled I am. And if this moment gives us a chance for greater absorption, I think the fortunate who come out of this still healthy and maybe still with a job and able to survive six months from now will realize that it's brought them back to who they wanted to be and whom we all long to be but forget in in the rush of things. And, you know, I noticed in myself a few years ago, I thought I'm in such a hurry, I can't see what a hurry I'm in. And, And that's why, as again you were saying with your question, I go on retreat to a monastery in Big Sur uh, every three months, and just three days in isolation sends me back a new, fresh, joyful person with a very clear sense of priorities, and, and most of all, a clear sense of what do I care about, my wife, my mother, um, my friends. And I think for some of us, this is a chance suddenly to be shaken out of our sleepwalking and to remind ourselves that the only thing that really helps us is inner resources. As I was saying, my mother was in Cottage Hospital um, two weeks ago. I was powerless here in Japan, just able to talk to her on the phone and Skype to her. And I thought, what can I bring to my mother? And how can I support myself in this moment? And I realized the money I've earned isn't going to help me. The books I've written are no help at all. The places I've been, none of that's of use to my mother. The only thing I can bring her is what I've gathered inside myself. And the only way I can gather any clarity or peace or strength inside myself is um, by being alone. And I actually made the fairly major life decision when I was 29 and I had a 25th floor office in midtown Manhattan to leave that for the back streets of Kyoto. And I've been here the last 32 and a half years because I thought, well, Japan is a country that's lived with suffering for 1,400 years, knows what to do with suffering, is relatively calm, resilient, and knows how to make its peace with real life. And in some ways, the strange moment now I see just like a forest fire or a car accident or a death, which is a visitation from real life that asks us, are we going to fight against reality, which is a fight we'll probably never win, or are we going to try to work with reality and to find our possibilities and our opportunities and openings within it? And um, somebody was saying to me a couple of weeks ago, um, oh, you've been through a lot of loss in your life. And I said, I think every human being has. Um, We're just victims of real life. And I think that's what's happening right now. Um, And although one's heart goes out instantly to the people who are most undefended, I think many of the people I know in Santa Barbara will come out of this intact and may see that this moment has given them a chance to think about 
what riches really mean and how maybe spending a day with, with their kids or with their family or um, taking a walk around their neighborhood is a better way of spending their time than racing around or um, you know, zipping off to the next 3 p.m. lunch and then 4 p.m. work meeting and then 5 p.m. whatever. Right. Well, well it's interesting, too. You, you know, you use the word absorption or we could use the word mindfulness or, or just a deep-seated focus. But, but you know, what, what we see uh, more and more through, whether it's through uh, scientific studies or, or teachings in, in many of the contemplative traditions, is this is, this is the seat of human happiness. Uh, and that gets proven out again and again. Isn't that correct? Oh, I, lo- I love the fact you said that. Exactly so, Jonathan. And, and I would say I would broaden it even beyond... Um, the great contemplative traditions to every wise person who's ever lived. Um, if you read Shakespeare, you find him saying, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. In other words, it's not what happens to us that's important, but what we do with it, how we respond to it. Um, turn to Milton, Paradise Lost. The mind can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. It's, again, it's not our circumstances that make heaven or hell, but who we are and what we bring to them. That's what the Stoics thought, as you suggest. Um, that's what the, the, the Buddhists think. Uh, that's what I've been spending a lot of time this last couple of months with the, one of the great experts on the mind and solitude, um, Marcel Proust. And as I sit on my um, terrace reading about him in love, what he's always saying is that all of that is illusion and projection. And so it's our mind that really is the tool that we can use either to turn this moment into something beautiful or just to get caught in um, our own tangles. And I think it goes back to your previous question because most of us, myself included, spend a lot of our time racing around to make a living and we never have a chance to make a life. And I feel this moment is the time to make a life. And that is something that's deep and internal and hard to measure, but it's what we leave behind us and it's what we bring to everything around us. Because once this cloud has passed, there will be more challenges for all of us. I'm in my 60s, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are going to be, if I survive this, very, very difficult times ahead. And this is my time to kind of build up my savings account, literally inside myself, to um, work with that. But just as you say, um, all the, the great traditions of the world in every culture, East and West, um, have told us how to find our happiness and how, how to lose it. And, you know, in recent years, I've sometimes told myself, if I really um, get my happiness from uh, doing a conference call now and then fielding my emails and then scrolling through the website and then turning on the TV, I should certainly continue. But <laughs> my sense is that that's not where my happiness, where my inspiration, where my direction for life come. And if I want all of those, I have to move away from distraction um, and into the places where I forget myself, I lose my time, that lose sense of time, and emerge four hours later thinking, My goodness, I've had the biggest adventure of my life. Whether it's talking to my wife or, or just two days ago, um, we took a walk around our neighborhood. And we've been in this little flat for 28 years, and it looks, our neighborhood in Japan, very much like Galita. It's a suburb modeled on the United States. But we just took a walk down a street we'd never been before, and in five minutes we came to this extraordinary bamboo forest with a line of cherry trees beside it, nightingales teaching their young to sing. And I thought, 
if it hadn't been for this moment, because my wife is usually out of the house, we never would have discovered even where we live and all the beauties that are around us. We take so much for granted. I, I certainly speak for myself there. For those that, that are trying to use this time to, to kind of cultivate a sense of silence or to explore different, different avenues of contemplation, but sometimes maybe when they get there, when they get the first taste of it, they don't know what to do with it, or it, it can feel kind of weird and scary to be alone. But, but for those that, that are trying to use this time or want to, what, what advice would you have or, or where, would you, where would you ask them to begin? Uh, what kind of ideas, thoughts, or writers come to mind for you? I'll begin with the first part of the question before elucidating thoughts and writers. And that is that, um, as you say, it is painful and it is inconvenient. And it's like going to the dentist or taking my car in for an oil check or whatever. That's never fun. It always plays havoc with my day. And any writer especially knows when you're sitting alone, there's nowhere to hide. And some of the time it's exhilaration and pure sunshine, and some of the time it's absolute loneliness and terror and um, kind of panic. But the difficult things in life are not going to go away just because you're not looking at them. And my sense is that you know there are dark corners in the world, there are dark spaces in myself, there are problems in my life, and I would far rather address them in the comfort of sitting quietly at my desk or in my house than when I'm driving around the 101 or when I'm in Times Square, when I'm in a plane flying across the world, which is the least useful circumstance for trying to address something important. Life is giving some of us a chance now to go even into the difficult places. And again, it's as we were saying with the fire, it's never, never a pleasant thing or comforting thing to go into the difficult places. But... Um, but one's always glad to have done it. Um, And I'm lucky because, of course, as a writer, I can use my so-called job to think through um, the the essential issues in my life. So a few years ago, I noticed how people were moving more and more and there was more and more acceleration. So I stopped and I wrote a book about stillness called The Art Art of Stillness, Adventures in Going Nowhere. And it was my way to explore, really, exactly the question uh, you posed, which is stillness is not always a a wonderful country to be in any more than Jerusalem is a wonderful city to visit. But I'm much richer of having spent time there. And stillness is the only way I can make sense of what's going on in the world and be moved and turn experience into a kind of meaning. And last year, because yeah, I'm in my 60s now, and uh, I live in a culture based around impermanence. I brought out a little book called Autumn Light, which is about living with mortality. And so I thought, I spend so much time you know, practicing for my driver's license test or uh, practicing for a job interview or some of us practice for a first date, and we never practice for the most inevitable and important um, moment of all, which is our death. And I thought, well, now I'm, I'm fairly elderly. This is going to happen to me, and it's going to happen to people around me. Let me um, write more than one book about it as a way to force myself um, not to be surprised by it. And uh, you know, Henry David Thoreau, who's certainly one of the people I would recommend to anyone, um, f- famously said that if you, if you think of death as a freak of nature, something not meant to happen to you, it's, it's an insult, it's an offense. But if you realize it's part of life, then slowly, though it's still a very difficult thing, you realize there's nothing gained by fighting against it, and there's something gained by 
making it a part of your life, just the way the Buddhists suggest seeing your most beloved person as bones or a skeleton. And the old Christian monks used to have a skull on their desk, not to make them morbid, but actually to make them joyful in the moment. Realizing that you're going to die means waking up to life and thinking, this is the time when I can find my my beauty, my wonder, my excitement on this radiant spring um, afternoon in Japan in a month when I almost never get to be in Japan, when the cherry blossoms are flowering. Uh, I don't want to take a second of this for granted because I don't know, you know how many more cherry blossoms there'll be in my life. And so when you're asking about people and I guess sort of concrete advice, um, I know when I'm in Santa Barbara, I'm always very grateful to go to my physician for a blood test and then to go to Mac Mechanic to get my apple sorted out and then to go to my tax consultant because he knows much more about how to file a 1040 than I do. And in the same way, in addressing your question, I think who are the real professionals of life? Who have devoted their lives to thinking about how to live? And those tend to be solitaries and monks. And so for that reason, I do go back to reading Henry David Thoreau again and again. So he was a connoisseur of silence and how living in a small space, a little bit out of your community, that's where you find wonder, epiphany, light. Um, that's where you realize how many riches you have inside yourself just by uh, attuning yourself to the rhythms of nature. I listened to Leonard Cohen a lot for the same reason because he was an ordained Zen monk for five and a half years there he was in his 60s, able to do anything, and he gave it all up to learn about how to live and how to die. And I think his five years as a monk gave him a kind of passion and depth and in intimacy that later he would bring to concert audiences on a six-year tour in his 70s. And people realized this is a wise person who's really worked hard to figure out how to say goodbye to everything, including himself. And this is somebody we can learn from. I love Emily Dickinson. Same thing, by, because she spent 26 years in a room, she felt everything with such a sensuous intensity. You know, she felt Jesus breathing on her neck and she felt death knocking on the door and she saw the light of eternity outside her window. And everybody knows her poems, but I love the letters of Emily Dickinson, which were some of the most passionate love letters you could ever find, um, to address to her sister-in-law, whom she saw being betrayed by her brother. But they're remarkable things. There's a woman called Etty Hillison, uh, who wrote a book called An Interrupted Life. And it's a remarkable thing, because she was a Dutch woman in her mid-twenties, who sounds like any woman or man in their mid-twenties. In other words, she was going to a therapist, she was confused about her love life, she didn't really know where she was going. And suddenly, the Holocaust approached. And out of nowhere, this 25-year-old Dutch woman, without, I think, a contemplative or spiritual background, rose to this position of clarity and compassion and selflessness that would make the saints blush. I mean, it's a remarkable document because it begins with um, what feels like the woman next door, the typical young woman next door, and then you realize this is somebody who is so at peace with life, with death, with reality. Um, everything she says is, is wisdom in the second half of that book. And, and that kind of thing is very tonic because she's not a monk who's been meditating for, for 50 years. She's not even a Leonard Cohen who's been a monk for five years. Just a regular woman who found something in herself that was deeper perhaps than anything she or f her friends uh, 
could have guessed. And there are so many um, other books like that. I mean, I always turn to the Dalai Lama and to Pope Francis in moments like this, partly because they're so humble and partly because they're so kind. Um, and as I said, I, I, I often go to uh, a Benedictine monastery in Big Sur, and right now it's closed, so I won't be able to go for a while. But the prior sent a message to all of us a couple of weeks ago, and he said, more or less, remember, the best cure for anxiety is thinking about other people. Such a simple everyday thing, no religion or theology in there, just a practical tip for living. But in some ways, it probably had to come from a monk to be reminded of that because most busy executives and moms and others you know, don't have the luxury of spending much of their lives thinking about what really matters. So I love, um, well, you know, writers are the best friends we could ever have. And although I live in a relatively isolated setting here in suburban Japan, I, I never feel lonely or without good conversation because every day I take a book out onto um, my terrace and suddenly I'm getting to to listen to Thomas Merton or um, a Tibetan monk or Zadie Smith or Annie Dillard, whoever it might be. Yeah, I mean, that was an incredible um, a list there of, of, of folks from all over the world, of different times, uh, generations that are that are talking about a lot of the same things. Um, you know, you've referenced a couple times that, that you're in your 60s now, and I wonder if you could just tell me how, how your relationship to silence is changing um, versus maybe when you were 30 years old. Do you find that where you go is, is, is a new place or a deeper place than maybe it was when you were younger? Well, I love that question. Thank you, Jonathan. I'd say <clears throat> I'm, I'm ever more grateful for silence. I think you know, when I was 30, I was, as most people are at 30, and as most people should be at 30, which is eager to taste the world, to learn about the world, to travel as far and as wide as I could to meet as many people as possible. And I think that is essential. I never would have given up that for the world. But um, the more time goes on, the more one comes to appreciate old friends more than new friends because one's already bringing a deep history with them to every conversation and I reread books now instead of looking for new books and I revisit the places that I love like Big Sur rather than looking for new destinations so I wouldn't say that um, I would say that silence has always been a friend of mine um, I've been going to that monastery for 29 years so I have a long history with it and with the silence there and I would say that silence has been the big teacher in my life I haven't had an individual who's been a teacher though I I've known a lot of people who've taught me many things, uh, but silence is what has really washed me clean and reminded me uh, this is what I'm meant to be doing in, in my life. So it, it's, it's a wonderful friend, and, and like as with my wife, my relationship with silence you know, has deepened and matured over, over the years. But I think the main difference is I seek it out ever more. And that's why, to go back to the beginning of this conversation, uh, I'm not chafing about all the things I can't do now so much as rejoicing at the things I can and, and grateful that I get a little bit of more time with silence than I might get um, otherwise because silence never <laughs> never disappoints me and silence doesn't tend to bring trivia into my life and silence isn't about chit-chat and small talk usually. It's very nourishing, just like the truest friends are. Well, Pico Iyer, thank you so much for, for sharing some of this, uh, this time with us here and some of your thoughts all the way from Japan. And uh, we think of you here in California, your other home, and uh, we look forward to hearing and connecting with you again soon. Thank you so very much, Jonathan. You're listening to KCRW's Foxhole. I'm Jonathan Bastian.
As Pico Iyer mentioned in our conversation, it's often contemplatives like monks, nuns, or meditators that have the most to say about living a meaningful life. So as we continue with our theme of silence and isolation in the time of coronavirus, we'll now hear from two such people. Vraja Prana is a Hindu nun in the Vedanta order. She's the author of a number of books on spirituality and has spoken globally on meditation and Eastern philosophy. She currently lives in the Vedanta Society of Southern California's Sarada Convent, located in Santa Barbara. Vraja Prana, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And Elizabeth Namgyal is a Tibetan Buddhist teacher who has spent years in meditation retreats. She's also the author of two books on Buddhism and the host of a podcast called Open Question. She joins us from her home in Crestone, Colorado. Elizabeth, we appreciate the time. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jonathan. Elizabeth, let's start with you. Um, You know, we just heard from Pico Iyer, who in jest kind of called himself a professional of being in isolation. And um, I think of you as someone uh, kind of similar. You know, you've spent six plus years in these solo meditation retreats. And um, I I wonder if you could go back in time and tell us about some of those first experiences you had sitting with yourself. Um, What was that like? Well, it's very profound. And I think um, there's isolation and then there's also the quietness, um, the not speaking. So in in a certain way, they're they're obviously intermingled. But maybe I can start with a story um, about when I was in retreat. I think this is a, I learned a lot from this particular experience. And I I have a cabin up at 9,000 feet up in the mountains. And I I had this big window in my cabin. And when I looked out the window, I could see, if I looked toward the north, there's all these beautiful mountains. It's kind of green and friendly. And when I kind of adjusted my seat to look toward the south, in the southern part of this huge valley that I overlook, it was always misty and very foggy and kind of lonely looking. And in the beginning of this retreat, it's a very long retreat that I did, um, I felt a tremendous amount of isolation and despair, like uh, very um, lonely, deep sense of loneliness. And so I'd always look toward the north. I didn't want to be more lonely, so I looked toward the north. And as time went on, I began to notice that I began to get a little bit, I I got intrigued by the lonely aspect of the valley. So I started to kind of inch my way over to the south. And there was a feeling, you know, during all of this time that I was very separate from the world around me. Even though I know You know, we live in a world that's interdependent and we're always connected to even nature or the air we breathe or the food we eat, but there was just this sense of isolation. And as I started to kind of look toward that foggy area, my heart started to kind of open. You know, I was more willing to experience this sense of loneliness and I started to feel a connectedness to things I had never felt before. Just a lot of love and um, connection. And I started noticing the world around me. It's as if almost everything was waking up in front of me. I started to notice the ants on my deck and the birds in the trees and how the pine cones were changing. And, you know, every week looked very different. And I knew where the sun and the moon was. And I started to realize that isolation doesn't really have to do with being separate from things, but it's it's something that has to do with the way you are able to relax with yourself and relax with your own experience. So that was a big experience for me about isolate, being, being alone. Because being alone and feeling isolated, I feel are very different things. 
Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And, and also for that distinction. Um, Rajaprana, I mean, a- after spending years in, in the monastic life as well, I'm sure you could share similar experiences. Um, what, what's, what comes to your mind? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I'm, I kind of want to riff off that because all, we hear a lot of people fearing and truly being afraid of the loneliness that may come with isolation. But we don't we forget how rejuvenating it is because we all go into deep silence every night when we enter into deep sleep. All of us in the Hindu tradition, with there, there are considered four states of consciousness. There's waking, there's dreaming, there's dreamless sleep, which in which we're the most rested, that really gives us that deep quiet we need. And then the fourth, the Turiya, which is beyond all three states. And which we say is our real nature. It's absolute pure consciousness. That is, is our true nature. So when if we don't get deep sleep, we're not. We don't feel. We don't feel rejuvenated. We don't feel happy. Things seem out of sorts. So we have this at night every day of our lives. And if we don't, if somehow we miss it or don't get enough of it, it's like, thing things are out of whack. So I think what we really have to do is sort of examine our our resistance to it and see, why am I afraid to experience that which is the most restful? Why am I afraid of, is it that I'm afraid to look into my mind? Is it afraid that I'm uh, I'm afraid of what I might find if I just sit calmly? And I think perhaps our own society has been so frenetic that it's it's more or less taught us that if you're not busy, you're, you're not being a good person. You're not contributing. So that that's sort of what came to mind, but I'm appreciating the fact that now with we don't have the public coming in here. So I mean, we we tend to have a lot of public coming in and out, but now we can really spend a lot more time hearing the birds. It's like oh oh that community that I haven't been able to hear as well as I'm hearing now. Oh, we have a lot more um, cougars coming in and bears, which they've been kind of hiding, but now we see them more often. But isn't it a blessing to realize that we're just one part of this infinite creation and what a joy is to see that we are just only part of it, only one part of this beautiful cosmic scene here. You know, Elizabeth, I, there's a lot in there I'm sure you could respond to, but but I do wonder that when you come at this from, let's say, the Tibetan tradition, why is it that people are so scared to, to be alone, to sit with their own thoughts? Yeah, I love what... Um... Prana was saying about rejuvenation, and I, I t- completely agree, and that's what meditation is really for, is like to be able to enjoy your mind and, and to be able to um, have some space um, in your life. Um, but I think we, we think of meditation sometimes as a, a means to relax, um, as a way to have some sort of you know, quiet time in our life, but when you actually go to sit, especially in the beginning when you're not habituated or familiar with the practice, a lot of things arise in your mind. A lot of boredom, a lot of discomfort, a lot of um, fear, um, a lot of things that we haven't really paid attention to. And I think we haven't really, unless you've done a lot of meditation, you, you wonder what to do with that experience. It's like we know how to you know, ingest, digest, and eliminate food. But we don't necessarily know how to digest our own experience. It's like, what do you do when all that rich energy, which is often quite uncomfortable, arises in your mind? 
And, and so I really, in a way, I, I think of all the people who are having to just stop right now and how new that might be for them or how scary that might feel for people who haven't done a lot of meditation. And so I think like a basic meditation or some kind of um, means, some infrastructure to work with the mind, like watching the breath, you know, and quieting the mind a little bit and strengthening the mind in that way is very helpful for people um, at this time, or it could be. So I, in, in, just in response to why is it so difficult, I think we're just not habituated. We're not used to the rich energy of our mind. And I don't want to judge anything that arises because meditation is about learning to relax in, in, with whatever arises in your mind, whether it's uncomfortable, like a rough, unwanted experience or something pleasant. You know, how do we how do we appreciate that without getting completely captured by it? You know, because even beauty is difficult. You know, we get attached to beauty or attached to meditation experiences. Like, what do we do with all of it? And that's, that's exactly what meditation is there to address. Um, at least yeah. in our tradition, that's how I would describe it. Yeah, well, I, I totally agree. In the Hindu tradition, we have a practice of just sitting that's after and this watching short break. the mind where it goes, not judging just watching where it goes. And then if, if we can just sit and see that some co- thoughts go this way, some thoughts go that way, then the mind by itself quiets down. And then you realize that you're actually a few steps away from the mind. Because in, in our tradition, it's so important not to identify with the moods in the mind. Because we think, I'm happy, I'm sad, and we kind of identify ourselves with the vritis, these, these little waves that go through the mind, and we're not the waves. We're that infinite, infinite ocean of consciousness behind. That once we get that enough of a little distance, we go, oh, I'm watching that. I see that the mind is feeling anxious right now. And then you can kind of say, okay, you, this is feeling anxious. Okay, is there any particular reason? If you get enough detachment on it, then you don't go into the judgment thing. It's like, oh my God, I shouldn't feel anxious. I mean, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be all peaceful and everything. So I think that, that if we could just step back and then learn to enjoy that deep, deep peace and that, and that solitude and silence, that's our real nature. That is who we are, that incredible, deep peacefulness. You know, Vrajaprana, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the story or the history of what's called the sannyasin in the Hindu tradition. Um, and I'm interested in this because I think it runs so counter to how we feel in the West, which is that we always need to be surrounded by people throughout any stage of life and that, you know, more social activity tends to be good. Um, can you say a little bit about that? In the Hindu tradition, there's there's four stages of life. There's the, the student stage where from you, you, you learn everything, you learn everything, you're, you're taking in everything you're learning. Then you go into the householder stage of life, grahasta. Where you you are you have a family and you have and you're responsible for the maintenance of society. Then after that, there there's the vanaprastha where you retire. You start thinking more and more about okay, I'm getting towards the end of my life. Uh, my kids are okay; they're doing fine. Seen the grandkids? That's great. Now it's time for me to lead a, a more uh, contemplative life. And then for some, it's the period of sannyasa where you actually t- kind of take, you exit from society, either m- physically, as they often do in India, or mentally, uh, because there's nothing to stop us from taking like, okay, the, the world will go on without me just fine. 
But, you know, in our particular order, we take a double vow, a self-realization for oneself and service to the world. Because our order is one of the largest social service organizations in India, for we feel that if you want to worship the divine, the, the best cathedral is the human heart. So that's why we have so many schools, hospitals. We're trying right now to do a lot of feeding of the people, of the migrant workers who, who, who aren't getting the food that they need. So we also take a vow of service. And in this country, of course, in, we're very active in Transition House here in Santa Barbara. But we feel so much of the poverty here is spiritual because people do not do not feel like um, perhaps they don't realize or understand or even believe in that divinity within their own hearts. And if you can't see in your own heart, you're not going to see it in the hearts of others. And that leads for a very unhappy life. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I'm very familiar with those four stages of life. I always thought that was such a beautiful teaching. Um, and that's where the Buddha actually came from. Um, but I think, you know, certain, there are certain aspects of uh, the Buddha Dharma that really, really em- emphasize interdependence. I mean, interdependence is really at the core of the whole Buddhist teaching, you know. And I think when we look especially at Mahayana Buddhism, um, the path of the Bodhisattva, there, the teaching is really that one's own awakening is inextricably linked with others, with the awakening of others. So, for example, your happiness is my happiness. You know, there's a sense of, and I love what she was saying about service. I think service is incredibly important. And the, the Buddha, when he did emerge from, from his time under the Bodhi tree, he, you know, he created a sangha and he began to teach and, and, you know, develop a way of life based on, you know, vows and precepts, but on very beautiful values and loving kindness and service and all of that. Vrashaprana, you know, I, I wonder right now um, what you're telling people uh, what, what, or what advice you would give people that are kind of still finding themselves in, in a period of discomfort or isolation. Um, where, where do we kind of begin taking a step towards uh, a, a different way of approaching the situation? I think if people can realize that there's so many gifts, there's so many gifts that are, are given us when, we are, when we're quiet that when we can when we can have time to ourselves when uh even even in a small place that we can enjoy the quiet and just realize that this is the mind that I have let me tend this garden it's wonderful right now we've we've got such there's such beautiful greenery outside i love weeding i love being outside but there's also a garden inside the mind that if we can use that time use it wisely to, to really develop the characteristics that we appreciate in others that we would like to see more in ourselves. Am I being compassionate enough? Am I, am I, what do I need in myself to feel like I can be a stronger human being, mentally, physically, spiritually, so that I can really be available to other people? What can I do to develop more patience, to develop more, more compassion, more same-sidedness? More, more, less judgmental. And I think it so many of us um, in this country are just so dependent on devices and trying to entertain ourselves nonstop that it's a terrible way to live. Because basically, we come in alone, we die alone. What are we feeding our minds? There was a be- beloved Swami of our order who said, you never know 
when you will only have the company of your mind. So he made a point of, of reading, of memorizing shlokas, uh, holy thoughts, and and knowing that his mind was really, at some point, would be his only company. And sure enough, he had a stroke. So for probably for the last four or five years of his life, he had mm. nothing but the company of his own mind. But when you go in his room, you'd feel this incredible presence. So all of us have this capacity now to really to really feed our minds positive, loving thoughts. And instead of going into fear and anxiety, to, to if, if we go in there, say, okay, what am I anxious about? Then kind of pull it apart as you would take apart the, the petals of a flower. I'm anxious about, I'm anxious about what, getting sick? Well, I might not this time. Eventually I will. Some point in my next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I will get sick, okay? Okay, I'm afraid I will die. You will die. This body will go. Don't avoid thinking about it. Make the idea your friend. Make the idea, it's like, this is part of life. Death is as much a part of life as birth is. Don't avoid it. Think about it. Relate to it. See it happening all around us, in the plants, in the trees, in the flowers. This is the part of the circle of life. We're part of that circle of life. And then if we feel anxious, just, I love this verse from the Panchadasi. What will not happen, will not happen. What will happen, will happen. Knowing this removes the poison of anxiety and removes grief. I find that very strengthening. Uh, Elizabeth, I kind of, uh, the question back to you here as well. Um, I, I know you, you're still teaching actively. You're engaged with, with people on all levels. What, what, what advice do you give people in a similar vein of thought here about how to spend these next weeks? They could be months. Yeah, well, I feel if you are home sheltering um, and you have this opportunity to pause, um, it's an opportunity for well-being because there's a lot of people who don't even have the luxury to be able to remove themselves from the situation which is threatening, you know? And so I, as much as it could be really frightening, I really understand why this is frightening for some people. You know, fright, people are afraid to be bored. They're afraid to face some things, loneliness and things that they haven't faced before. So I really, I really do want to acknowledge that. But um, I, one thing I would re- recommend people to do is what you were saying, um, Frajapani, is to look into, in your garden. Like, I notice that when I go for a walk, a lot of my neighbors, I live in a pretty rural area, so I don't see many, but people are out there kind of working with their plants, just like you were saying, or listening to the birds. There's, you know, it feels lonely, but that's because we're not really paying attention. And we think that uncertainty is something that just happened to us. But uncertainty is happening all the time in life. And uncertainty is not necessarily a negative thing. Uncertainty is, means that life is full of surprises. So, you know, you may think, oh, I'm in my house stuck and bored. But every moment, something is happening. The world is moving. Things are happening all of the time. And in, in you know, your life, which might seem very isolated and contracted, is actually full of life. And one of the things about meditation is that you, when you sit and you look at your mind, there's all kinds of things. They're not just one thing happening and you're stuck there. You're bored. But what you think of as bored is like a map for a territory of a lot of different things happening. So if you just stop for a minute and you pay attention, there's so much, as, as you were saying, um, Rajapani, there's so much to appreciate all the time. And I really think 
It's not as if, I hope we don't go back to normal because normal has been very speedy, very distracted. Um, you know, normal didn't seem good to me. And as much as I feel heartbroken about what's happening and the suffering that people are experiencing and the loss of jobs and, and hospitals and what's going on there, I really hope, my hope is that there's a pause, that this pause and that incredible momentum that I didn't feel was so good necessarily, um, will wake people up and help us relax in a new way. I really pray and encourage people to take this as an opportunity to learn something very, very new and to, to, and to be curious, not to assume that you know it is what you think it is, but be more curious about these experiences that you're afraid to face. You know, and you might find a whole new well sense of well-being that you haven't experienced before. And this is what I hear both of us saying is that in this kind of situation, there's an opportunity for something very new, very fresh, very um, comforting and, and freeing to happen. Couldn't agree more that that beautiful idea of like, we, we really don't want to go back to the old normal. It was not okay. It was not healthy. Physically, psychologically, spiritually, it was unhealthy. It was unhealthy for the whole planet. This is a, a real sign. It's like, hey, we got to do this differently. Well, Vraja Prana, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on KCRW. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And thank you, Elizabeth. What a pleasure to meet you. Elizabeth and Amiel, thank you for making the time as well. We appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this week. You've been listening to KCRW's Foxhole. You can learn more about the show at kcrw.com slash foxhole. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll see you next week.